reading and preaching for you out of Acts chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 17. Hear now the word of God. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Tadius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out of the tribunal, and they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your spirit. We thank you for the furthering of your church and kingdom by the power of your son and his resurrection and reign. And just as they there were some persuaded by the preaching of your word and the teaching of your word, may it be, Father, that as we hear and consider your word today, that we would respond as those who believe and follow you. We ask your mercy that we would not be those who would be hardened and who would show opposition against the king, your son, in whose name we pray now. Amen. You may be seated. I titled this particular sermon uh, a quote that Gallio gave before them about words and names and their law, their own law, because this particular passage is a fairly fast-moving narrative of Paul's mission in Corinth. 
And it is full of lots of names and some words, and it centers upon the conflict of Paul teaching people how to worship the true God, the true way, through the true Son of God, Jesus Christ, and how that was conflicting with law, human law, the laws of those who were Jews who manipulated God's law and changed it for their own purposes and would appeal to man's law to combat those that would come against what they were hoping to be their own religion and their own way of doing things. So they were using law and using it wrongly to combat, really, the message in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so I don't have a really good structure of a three-point sermon today, but I want to encourage you to look at three particular things um, throughout this passage as we go through this passage together. And one is the people. There are a lot of different names of people, which I probably butchered some of their names as I tried to pronounce them. But it's interesting when you see such a concentration of names that we should at least stop and take a look at these different people because God in his providence has provided us a word and preserved a word for us and carried over these names. We don't have a full list, like a, a book. He has a book of everyone written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but we don't have that book. But we do have this book, and when he gives us names, it is good for us to consider those names. Secondly, not only the people, but also the, the um, procedure that Paul is going through. And it's another highlighting of how Paul did things when he would come into a place. We would see some consistencies of how he also uh, ministered in other cities and other regions, but we also see some different ways that he added up, uh, added to the way that he was doing things. And then thirdly, the providence of God and how God was carrying out his kingdom and his work through his own providence, things that we cannot control. And it's there that I hope to land on a very hopeful element that as we consider the people and the procedures of the ministry of God, that what is all this about is resting on the hand and the providence of God by the work of Jesus Christ. So first of all, we have the introduction of Aquila and Priscilla. And I've mentioned this to you before, and I would encourage you, even though you may not always get a perfect layout of what particular verses I'm going through, most of you should have a pretty good feel for where the sermon passage will begin next week. Can anybody in here tell me where the sermon passage will begin for next week's sermon? And I haven't even told you. It should be, you, you will be prophetic. Any guesses? Am I making the question too simple that people are... Verse 17. Verse 17? Well, it actually be verse 18. I finished in 17. So it would be verse 18. (laughs) So you're really close. Did anybody else guess 18? All right, very good. The passage will begin in verse 18. Now, if your Bible is broken up into nice little paragraphs or sections that are titled, you usually can get a pretty good feel of where I'm going to end. You can look in this particular run right here. and Mine ends in verse 23. How many of you guessed that I will end in 23? Probably you don't, I guess way too short for Charles's sermons. He is way too long-winded. He's going to go, now you know I can make a long-winded sermon out of you in a short passage. So it's a bit of a gamble there. But if you go to verse 18 and go to 23, you'll have a pretty good feel for, you're going to cover that well. And then maybe that I'll go all the way to 28. And the reason why I'm telling you this is that I would encourage you to take the time 
to actually write out that passage for next week by hand. It doesn't take a terribly long time. But I want to encourage you that because when I do that in preparation every week, I see things that really stand out more and more, and it might be helpful to you. When you're writing something down by hand, you have to go a little slower. And I would do it by hand, not just by typing it in, because you will see verbs typically. It's the verbs that stand out the most to me whenever you look at these particular passages. It's the verbs. And here we see that Paul, when he left Athens, he went to Corinth, and he found... A Jew named Aquila and a native, a native of Pontus recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He found. Now, I would venture to guess that it's likely he was looking for these people. He probably heard about this. Or it may have been he may have just come upon, but since the verb is found, that he was looking for someone like this. And he probably heard about Aquila and Priscilla. And he had probably multiple reasons to have interest in connecting with them. One, they were Christians. And the reason why I know that they're Christians is because they didn't have to leave Italy, Rome, because they were just Jews. They left because they were Christians. Now, this is not precisely in the scriptures, but there's historical evidence that has shown that there is a recording of when Claudius was in power in Rome that he did send out an edict because of the disruption in Rome concerning a Jewish person named Crestus. Now, because, well, that's, who's Crestus? Well, the, the misspelling of the pagan pronunciation of Christus is pointing to Christ. And most historians, biblical and secular, are pretty much conclusive that at that particular time, this edict, even it was attested by Tatticus and also uh, um, uh, or Suetonius, both of these are historian, uh, histori- uh, historic writers that both point out and highlight, and most scholars agree, that there was a teaching going around about Jesus Christ. And it was causing a disruption a very similar disruption that we've seen in other areas. We don't know hardly anything else about that disruption. We know that Paul eventually will make it to Rome, but the name of Jesus apparently, from what we can gather, was already there. And that these two particular people were not just Jews, but they were Christian Jews, and they obviously connected with Paul very quickly. It doesn't even talk about their particular conversion because they seemingly were already converted. What was the second reason why Paul would be interested in connecting with Aquila and Priscilla? Other than the cool name. It sounds cool, right? Aquila, Priscilla. I always thought that was kind of a, you know, if you need to marry someone that has a a rhyming kind of sound to your name. They were tent makers. makers. Why would that be interesting to Paul? he's He's also a tent maker. Do we know anywhere else where it talks about him being a tent maker in the scriptures? It just indicates that this was something that was his trade too. Now, what else do we know that was Paul's focus and occupation, occupied his time before he became a Christian? What was he? He was a Pharisee. doesn't say that he was a tent maker. Well... Jewish custom, and which is a fairly common custom throughout the world, is that fathers would teach their sons a trade. In fact, it was considered to be a very bad thing if fathers did not 
teach their sons a trade that they could be able to make a living for themselves by the time that they became an adult. Even though Paul was involved in his studies in the scriptures, he was taught likely a trade. He was a tent maker. And it is, you know, for us in our context today, it's like somebody says, well, what, what's your occupation or what, what's your background? For me, it's just like, yeah, just throw all kinds of stuff at them. I've done this, I've done this. And, and then I look at it all and I go, well, I really don't think I have a trade in particular. I just hodgepodge, you know, because of all the different backgrounds that I have. They're not really defined by that. They were more so defined in those ways. They didn't have the same kind of diversity of, you know, just going from one job to the next. They had something that they were taught and it was passed down. They were apprenticed to something. And obviously Paul was interested in connecting with them because they had a trade, they were involved in a trade that he was trained in, and they were Christians. And so he was looking at these two particular things as being a very fruitful relationship for him to connect with. And so he sought it out. And so there's a providential element to this that they ended up coming to Corinth at a time that he was at Corinth that wasn't something that he planned. He didn't call Claudius up and say, hey, if you could send those two down, that would be really helpful to me. They were on the run. And it's an encouraging thing for us to see that even in opposition, that God had a plan for Aquila and Priscilla to connect with Paul. There happened to be these two people who had a similar trade and were those who were followers of Jesus Christ that were going to assist Paul not only in the start of, this, of the church in Corinth, but in other missionary work. And we learn a lot about this relationship in the very small amount of information that we have from, about Quilla and Priscilla. We learn a lot about the nature of God's kingdom that we'll talk about more in even other sermons. So we see here that there's a providence of God building his team, his mission team, his ministry team, by putting these people here through opposition, through the history of how these people were trained and how they were making a, a, a living, and how Paul had been trained and how he would be making a living. And he, because of the nature of his work and because of his own conviction, had opted to continue to be bivocational in his ministry work, to basically fund his own way in his mission work for the Lord. And it was all being brought together in this a connection of details about names and people. We see the name of Claudius, and when we learn about his particular history and how it had an impact, his opposition to Christianity had an impact on the church. And then we go back and we find readings from other people, and we see that this name Christus was actually, or Christus was actually Jesus. The name of Christ caused this disruption, but was provoking a movement that would further the church into Corinth. And that is tremendously encouraging for us. Then we see this pattern. We see a pattern with Paul, not only the people and the providence of what's going on here. We see a pattern. When Paul gets to a city, what's the first thing he tends to do? He goes to the synagogue. Now, we see that that's typically a place which causes disruption in many situations, but that's where he goes. Why does he go to the synagogue? But why doesn't he just go somewhere else? Why does he go to the synagogue? People gather, there. People, ga- people gather in other places. They have bathhouses and stuff like that. He's able to connect the Jewish prophecies to the Jewish Messiah, Jesus 
they were people of the word. They were people of the scriptures that should be able to have prophecies before them. And he was able to connect that, hey, this person that is the Christ that you are studying, the Messiah, the one that you all are saying that you hope in, I have found him. He has come to me. He has found me. And I am here to proclaim that what? Christ is Jesus. That's what it says he does. He goes into the synagogue and he reasons with them. And it's interesting because in the New King James, it says that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And it's interesting in the ESV, it says, and tried to persuade. And just a kind of a side note, not really heavy duty side note, um, tried to is not in the Greek. Um, they're assuming in the tense of persuade that maybe it was, he was trying to. But in any sense, we know that he is successful. So maybe the New King James folks or the King James folks, they just said, you know what, he, he was successful, so he did persuade. So for some reason, it's interesting how they, they added that in the ESV that he was trying. So yeah, he was trying to, and he was successful in it. He was trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks that have assembled. And what we've learned from other missionary accounts that were often Greeks there, Gentiles, who were God-fearing Gentiles, God-worshipping Gentiles. Those are the two terms that were oftenly referred to. They were not necessarily Jews, but they were drawn by the word of God, seeking out the ways of God, and also seeking the Messiah. So these were people who were looking for the Messiah, supposedly, at least by their profession, at least by the word that they were centering around, at least by the worship in which they were practicing, they were looking to worship and practice, ultimately, Christianity, because they were looking for the Christ. They were looking for the Messiah. And Paul was here to convince and to reason with them, to preach to them, who this was. And it says, when, when Silas and Timothy arrived, arrived from Macedonia, it said that Paul was occupied with the word. And because I was in the New King James looking at this, it was interesting when I read across in the New King James, it actually says that he was in the spirit. I thought, well, that's a really big contrast from being occupied in the word. And I thought, well, it's not really supposed to be that big of a contrast. And the reason why is that verb tense there is that he was seized by the word. He was not just occupied like, you know, oh, this is an interesting passage, like maybe, maybe what I am doing when I'm just studying sometimes. He was seized by it. And it's a very heavy-duty Greek verb that he was overcome by the word of God. Then it makes a lot more sense to see why the New King James had concluded that he was in the Spirit. Because we know that for us to understand the Word that we even read in our confession of faith today, that we can have all kinds of, you know, well, I'm really smart, I'm really capable, I'm able to make discernments. That we need someone to open our eyes even to the studying of the Word. So it is a parallel statement that he was seized by the word, and that he was also seized by the Holy Spirit in his study. But it also should be very telling to us when we consider the procedures that when we are before the word, if you do take up my um, admonishment and encouragement to you to actually write out the passage every week, I would start that with prayer. That God would open your eyes to the word. That you don't just go, okay, I've got to hurry up and do this. You know, that way when Charles says, how many people did this? And I can raise my hand. 
You know, we're not trying, you don't want to try to get my approval or to make me happy. Though I, I would appreciate that. That would be really encouraging. Um, but you want to be able to see what the Lord is teaching us. And so to put our mindset into a meditative state of prayer before God, God, show us your word. Help us to see these things so that we would, one, be persuaded more and more that Christ is Jesus and that we would be more and more those who would submit unto his kingdom and calling for the furthering of his name in all things. So I encourage you to, to seek to be in that state of mind that Paul was in, that he would not to be just occupied, but to be seized by the word and that he was testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Again, we know that Paul was giving his personal testimony in its combination to the written testimony of the scriptures. He had encountered Jesus. That's how he keeps going back and saying, I am an apostle because I have been appointed directly by Christ to bring this to you. I have a special authority. I have actually met Jesus, and it matches his word. The Spirit has revealed that it, it, this is the Christ. Now, we are not apostles, but may it be that we would be able to have that same type of work, that as we're in the word of God, we're also looking at the evidence that God has presented in your life. Hopefully, namely, of revelation, of understanding that you would testify that Jesus is the Christ in your life. In addition to those three things, may a question be on your mind today and that you would leave today. How is your life testifying that Christ is Jesus? That Jesus is the Christ? Is it in any of your conversation Is it in how you live your life? We know that later on that it is imperative when we see in the epistles that there's a combination there. That Paul starts out all of his epistles with talking about the declaration that Jesus is Christ. And he is pointing out all of the connections to the prophecies and how Jesus has come and fulfilled that work. But then he teaches us this covenant life together of how we are living in relationship with one another, how we are relating to each other and connecting to each other, and how the gospel is a necessary component for us to even get along with each other, and how our relationships with one another should be testifying that Jesus is the Christ, that Christ is the Jesus, is Jesus. For some reason, my iPad wants to go back. And I guess I'm, maybe I'm not who I am because the facial ID is not working or anything. So give me a second. Sorry. I must have changed the setting to a lot here. So what can we learn from the pattern? We can learn that it's good to be with God's people one day out of seven. That is a, a thing that God has established. He established from the very beginning. It's a creation foundation and how he would rest. And we should find our rest and our hope by being together in the word. It is a time to come to him and to recognize that he has done the work. And that our ultimate rest is relying on him. And that we should be centered on that word and hoping in and looking for the Messiah. We should be occupied by the word so much that we are seized by it. Hoping that the spirit is in us as we are reading the word and we should be living our lives both in proclamation and in life that Christ is a Jesus but also we see 
What happens when Paul does this very thing? He does all the right things. He's doing his normal pattern where he comes in. Actually, the word was pattern, not procedures. I don't know why I changed it up there because I've got it written as pattern. The regular pattern of Paul is to come in and to preach in the synagogue, and he's doing all the right things. What kind of results did he get initially, at least in the flow of the passage? Not the best results. He was rejected and he was reviled. So, you know, it's like, it's one thing to say, eh. But then, then they took kind of like an offensive. It's like they rejected him and they also reviled him. And he, it quickly in this particular way it's flowed out, that not only did they oppose and revile him, he just said, okay. And then he does this, he does this act, which a lot of prophets do. And the prophets you go through the Old Testament, they do some pretty funky stuff sometimes to, to, to make points. You know, they, they eat scrolls, they, wear, they wear, wear weird clothing and stuff. And in this particular situation, he does this symbolism by taking his garments, which was not an unusual thing to do. It looks weird to us, but he would take the garments and he, he shook them and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, he is showing a couple of things here that, one, he is seeking to be obedient to God. He may not necessarily have wanted to go there. He's probably already kind of gotten a fairly good drill because he used to be a Pharisee. He understands how they operate. And he was a pretty... In the mind of the Pharisees, he was a good Pharisee, which is not a good Christian. <laughs> and so he knows he's dealing with people that, he's, that was a lot like him at one time. And, and sometimes, if you're like me, the people that are kind of like you, that on the bad part of you, those are the people you don't like very much. You're like, yeah, I know how that person is because I sometimes still think that way, but I used to think that way. But he was doing it out of way. He was doing it anyway because he sought to obey God and to minister the gospel. And it says, and you can see it through other writings that he has, particularly in Romans. He loves them, even though he may not like how they respond. But he does it anyway. And he says, "I'm innocent. I've done my part. I've come here. I've proclaimed it, and I have been rejected and reviled." Now, this is a part of the pattern of the kingdom. And this is not one that we tend to think about or like or embrace. But Paul basically moves on and leaves them behind. And he moves literally next door to a Gentile who is a worshiper of God. And the church actually gets planted there instead of the synagogue. Now, it's important to look at this and the pattern of how Paul is building the church because it's important for us to think about the nature of the kingdom, that there is rejection. There is not only rejection from people, but there is also the rejection by the ministry when the time has come to say, we've got to move on. Now, most of us go, well, what about leaving the 99 to go after the one? And we go, that's what we should be doing. We should always be going after that one and doing everything we can to bring that one back. And I would say there is a season and a place for that, that we would go out for the lost. 
But in Matthew, where Jesus gives the parable of leaving the 99 to go after the lost, does anybody know what is the next instruction, the very immediate next instruction after the parable of the 99 and the 1? It's in Matthew 18. Does anybody know what's a very popular thing, and particularly for Presbyterians? Matthew 18 is where there is church discipline. It's where there is you go to the one who has offended you, and you go with a witness, and then you go with the church, and then if that doesn't work in time, you consider them a Gentile. Not the kind of Gentile that you're going to build a church with, <laughs> but a Gentile who is practicing one who does not care about the Messiah. There is eventually, for the sake of their own soul, handing them over to Satan so that maybe in that discipline that they will be brought back to the Lord. It's not that Paul finally just got tired of them and said, okay, this is, I'm done with them. It is that he is also understanding the nature of the kingdom by the very instruction of the king. And we know that there's this the, a more full version of understanding this because where this church is being built, which is exciting, we're like, okay, now they have a place. They're, they're going to start in, in um, Titius Justice's home. They're going to have a new church. But remember where this is. This is in Corinth. And then when we go through the epistle to, to the church in Corinth, we realize, wow, they had a lot of issues they had to deal with. So this is, the, this is the good old days of the church of Corinth when they were first introduced to Jesus. But even in that introduction, we see that there's division. We see that there's conflict. And we see that God is shaping the new church here in the home of the one who is next door to the synagogue. But then even more so, we see Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. Sounds like a, a name of a cereal. I know that, you know, like Crispus. The ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. God started the church of Corinth next door to the synagogue out of rejection with the help of two people who were rejected out of Rome who happened to also have the same kind of trait. He's pulling all of these different things together, all of these names of people, and he uses even the ruler of the synagogue in his household who have come to the Lord, including their whole household, and they were believed and they were baptized. And this is the birth of the church in Corinth. Now, obviously, since the beginnings of this church in Corinth were based upon conflict, Paul must have been, even though it sounds like Paul, you know, he's, he's a rugged guy. I mean, he has been dealing with conflict for a long time. But we know that Paul is human. It doesn't matter how often you deal with conflict. In fact, it's probably good that you never get to a place where you're so hardened that you think, you know, I can handle it. I don't really care anymore. I don't care what people say. I want to do it anyway. You know, threatening, ah, you can't kill me. God's going God's gonna to save me. I would say that it's good that Paul is likely in a situation for us to have this narrative that Jesus would come to Paul and say, do not be afraid is a good thing. That he was still humble. That he is still one relying on God, realizing his humanity and needing to be relying on the protection of God. And God told him, but go on speaking and do not be silent. 
For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. This morning during our prayer time, we were reading, we're going through Genesis right now, the interactions with God's people, with God. And we were at the place where Abraham is asking God about whether he's going to destroy Sodom. He's like, what if there's 50? And he was like, well, subtract five from that. And then what if there's 40? And you know, if you know that particular passage, and he's, he's appealing to God, will you at least preserve the righteous that are there? Here we see God's nature, because he did protect those who were in Sodom. And we see here that Jesus is telling Paul, don't give up, don't be afraid, I am with you, I have people here. You are going to be fruitful. Now, honestly, reading that, I'm like, Lord, I I wish you would come to me and and give me that kind of confirmation sometimes. Well, he did. It's in the word of God. He's teaching us here in the book of Acts that this is his nature. This is what he he tells us to do. And and that conflict shouldn't be the thing for us to just automatically assume that it's time to, to shut up shop. But for us to think about how God is brought people, and I started thinking about that. I started thinking about all the different people who are here this morning, and even some who are absent. That he brought them, he's brought them up from all over the world. And there's been different kinds of conflicts and challenges. And even in our own lives, there's sometimes conflict and challenges that bring us closer and further in understanding the nature of God's wonder. And I think he's doing it. I can testify to you that this Christ is Jesus, and he is active and he is living in the midst of conflict and building his church, and that there is no reason for us to be afraid. And it is very likely, like it was in Sodom and like it was here in Corinth, that he has his people here, and he wants us to keep going, keep proclaiming God's word. And inside of that providence, inside of those the lives of these people, and the pattern in which God has instructed us to live, we can have hope that he will do what he said he's going to do, and he does. And it says in verse 12, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made it a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now, when I read that, I was like, well, he, God told him there wasn't going to be an attack. <laughs> well, it says, we've got to read a little more closely. This is why it's helpful for you to write. No one will attack you to harm you. Now, they were putting together an attack on Paul, and they brought him before the tribunal, but God was going to show off again, like he always does. And they said, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Again, we see this theme that the antithesis of the kingdom, those who are going to fight against the kingdom, they're always going to be appealing to things apart from the actual law of God. That even these people who were supposed to be Jews, they're going to try to find ways to appeal to some kind of other law, if not their own law. They're just trying to find ways to fight God. They're going to use every man-made weapon that they can to try to shut up the truth about how we are to what? To worship God. Now, it's important for us to understand, again, what they're actually fighting against. This worshiping of God is not just people becoming Christians. It's not just people who 
sign a card or even just get baptized. It's people who are worshiping God. He is teaching them how to worship the Christ. And it's important for us to magnify and highlight once again that the word Christ means a mixture of Savior, King, Ruler. We are owned by this one Christ. It means that those who bear the name Christian are going to be loyal in life and in our worship. It means that our life will reflect a life of worship. So as we think about the question, how do we testify that Christ is Jesus, is our life a life of worship to this one? And for those here, it was being shown that Paul was teaching them and persuading them to worship Jesus. And therefore, they brought in whatever guns that they could find to try to stop this because it was opposing their religion, their man-centered religion, that ultimately really is no different than what we saw in Athens in the last passage, where they had shaped a religion in their own image. Here, these Jews that were in the synagogue had done the same. But God wants to make a spectacle of this situation, whereas Gallio responds, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since there is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things, and he drove them out of the tribunal. And it's interesting that we have one more little sentence here that indicates that even though he has this issue about vicious crimes... It seems like the Greeks ended up having a vicious response to Sosthenes, and they end up beating him up, and Gallio just walks away. And so it's an interesting connection of names, but it's showing that God is in control of this situation once again. And because of that, the church of Corinth is able to be established. It doesn't get squelched from the very beginning. God is showing that he has control, just as he had control of Claudius, He has control of what's going on with Gallio. And we too can have that same kind of hope as we consider the names that we hear in the news every day. And we think that maybe one day there'll be some kind of account that we might read, maybe in heaven that we'll be reading. I don't know why we want to read about the leaders of the day, but maybe we will just so that God's name can be magnified. We will have, again, maybe a a reminder that God is over these particular names. That his providence is just continuing to show his power and his provision so that the name of Jesus would be centered in all things, above all things. Interestingly enough, we learn a little bit about Gallio later on that he and his brother, his brother was a very famous writer, so famous, I can't remember then his name at the moment, because I didn't write it down. But both of them were worked for Nero for a time. And they actually did seem to lean toward the ideas of virtue and justice. And you can see here that he is one who has thought out justice and thought, this is not my fight. I'm not going to get involved in this kind of thing. But eventually Nero's ruthlessness was too much for what? Gallio could present before them, and Nero got tired of Gallio and his brother and had them both executed later on. May it be that we would understand, and maybe they became Christians. I don't know enough about Gallio to know what happened there. But the justice that we will ultimately see being played out is going to be in the hands of the only one who was just, 
and that he is the one who is ruling over all things, that these courts are not the things that we need to fear. And even today, as it is more and more likely, if not us in this room, the children or the grandchildren that may come from the ones in this room are going to face unfortunate but maybe God-glorifying opportunities to be standing before courts. And we should not fear those circumstances because we know that the one who is sitting at the right hand, who's already accomplished the victory, is only using these providential means to proclaim his name. Our pattern should remain the same day after day. We continue to worship him. We continue to teach and do the things that he has called us to. Now, it might seem like I'm going to take another bite of grimness by going through here, but as we think about what God has established in Corinth and how God protected Corinth enough to create the church, we have to remember that that work was not done. Just like our church has been established, and we've been kind of fledgling along in the last five years, there was work continuing to be done, and that work we may not understand fully. We may think, well, the definition of the work is that we should have grown so big and be having so much impact in this particular region. But we have to remember, what is the nature of what's really going on? God is defeating sin and death. And he's defeating it inside of us, namely. That these Corinthians who came together, who believed in Jesus, the work wasn't done inside of them. They still had sin that they needed to be redeemed from. I want to list for you just some of the things that Paul talks about that these Christians in Corinth are going to eventually be dealing with, or did deal with, as we're in chronological order now, what we'll find out later on, maybe whenever I preach on Corinthians. One, in Corinthians chapter 1, Paul starts out by talking about how they're having divisions over leaders. People are, some people are saying of Paul, some people are saying Apollos, which we're going to learn about Apollos here very soon. About methods of preaching, polished words and in, in, uh, in uh, philosophies, and in, in ways to present. There's a division about their leadership. And we see that the gospel is what levels that out. Paul presents again that it's Christ and him crucified that is the remedy for that. We see in 1 Corinthians 5, there's incest. So much incest that he's like, you know, even the Gentiles don't do this kind of stuff. You've got some pretty wicked stuff going on inside of you. Lawsuits against one another in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, in chapter 6, sexual immorality, where they're becoming one with the world and how they are trying to find ways to, well, we can still be here, but maybe if we're sleeping with people outside of the church, you know, just finding all kinds of ways to continue in their immoral thinking. And there's this confusion about singleness and marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then a confusion about leadership and authority of both the marriage structure and in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then when they come to the Lord's Supper, instead of understanding the great benefit and grace that we have in the very body and blood of Jesus Christ, they're pushing themselves to the front and becoming gluttons and drunkards, taking the very thing that God gave us To remind us of grace, they're going with selfishness, marginalizing the poor and the weak. And then chapter 12, they start start seeing the 
prioritization of different spiritual gifts. And it's just like the disciples all over again. That this person's going to sit on the left hand, and this is going to sit on the right. And, and who's going to be the better person? Not realizing the great gift that we have and having the diversity of our gifts and who we are. Gets to the point that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's having to remind them that the resurrection is real. There are those amongst them that are denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's right back to where it started. It's all about Christ and him crucified, Christ and him raised from the dead. Brothers and sisters, we are at different places in our walk. But it's going to be the continued same answer that began from the very beginning of that church. That first love is that it is Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is Jesus. He is crucified. He is risen from the dead. He is victorious over our sin. And as we come to him and worship him, as we come to this table, let us come with humility, continuing week by week, day by day, resting in that resurrected work that he has accomplished. Let us pray.